for the Pacifica Radio Network and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. So many of the early participants in the Sandinista Revolution were people who were um, inspired and activated because of their faith and because of this, these, you know, maybe 10 years of this adult faith formation that was based around this empowering idea um, that you are the church and that your analysis of these stories and your application to them to your real life um, is what's valid and is what matters. Sister Maura Clark, a Catholic nun, and three other women were assassinated by the El Salvadoran government in December 1980. This was a government supported by the United States. What did Sister Maura do that resulted in her violent death? Under the context of Vatican II, liberation theology, and oppressive dictatorships, we hear a story of radical faith. My guest is Eileen Markey, an investigative journalist whose work has appeared in publications such as the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and New York Magazine. In 2016, she published a book, A Radical Faith, The Assassination of Sister Mora. From the Bronx, via Skype, welcome Eileen Markey to Progressive Spirit. Great to be with you. Tell us a little bit about uh, Sister Mora Clark. Who was she, and, and how did this book come to be? So Sister Mora Clark was uh, one of four U.S. women who were killed in El Salvador in 1980. Um, three of them were, were Catholic nuns. One of them was a Catholic lay missionary. Um, and they were killed by the government of El Salvador, which was a right-wing military government that the U.S. was supporting at that time. Um, and their murder caused... A, you know, great alarm, great confusion in the United States, and really caused a lot of people in the U.S. to question what U.S. policy was in Central America and, and why our U.S. foreign policy was what it was, um, and whether we were backing the wrong side, if we were backing a military that um, killed tens of thousands of its own civilians and, uh, and killed these four uh, religious missionaries. So I was, I grew up um, probably like a lot of your listeners, learning about this story and hearing a little bit about the, the four of them became known as the church women. Um, as I grew older and about five years ago, I realized I didn't really know much about their lives. I only knew them as these martyrs, as these four women who were dead. Um, and their death had a lot of uses for a lot of different people, right? It became a way to criticize U.S. policy it became a way to teach Catholics especially about martyrdom and about sacrifice and about commitment. Um, it became a way for Catholics like me to kind of wear a badge and say, well, this is the kind of Catholic I am. I'm a liberation theology Catholic. I care about these women. And all of those are, are legitimate outgrowths of knowledge of this case. But I realized I didn't really know anything about these women until they were dead. And I was interested particularly in Mora because she was older than the women with whom she died which meant that she'd gone through this transition in the Catholic Church from um, very parochial, very God and country, anti-communist, sort of the church as a bulwark against the world, to um, a liberation theology church, to a church of the people, uh, to a church deeply engaged in and committed to the real-life struggles of, of people, um, particularly people in poor neighborhoods and poor countries. And so I wanted to understand how someone makes that transition and really um, how a nice girl like her got to this grave at the edge of the Cold War. Can you give us a quick uh, chronology of her life uh, from growing up in the Bronx? Yes. So she was born in the Bronx. Her parents lived in the Bronx when she was born. But when she was very young, they moved to Rockaway, Queens. 
um, which is a neighborhood on the edge of New York City. It's, it's part of the municipality of New York City, but it really feels like the beach. It's um, a seaside community in her day, a, a working class Irish immigrant community. She grew up with this really, really strong Irish identity because her parents were both immigrants and because she was in this neighborhood um, that was really an enclave. And um, like many women of her generation, particularly blue collar women of her generation, she joined the convent. Four or five of her closest high school friends also entered the convent upon graduation. Um, and for a lot of women of that generation, becoming a sister was a way to a more interesting life. Um, this was a time when avenues of education were closed off to many women, particularly blue collar women. Um, so she was, she entered the convent because she had deep religious belief and she wanted to do good. Um, but also she had a sense of adventure and a sense that she wanted to be something big and part of the wide world. And the Marianal Order represented that to so many women, uh, particularly at that time. So she joined the convent when she was 19, trained for several years, um, and then worked for briefly as a teacher in the Bronx for um, five or six years in the late 1950s. And then she went to Nicaragua and she spent really the majority of her adulthood as a missionary in Nicaragua um, from 1959 until 1976. These were years of tremendous change in that country. Um, the, the later of those years was when a, an opposition movement was gathering and rising against the dictatorship of uh, Anastasio Somoza. And she was very much a part of that, a part of a, a renewal of the Catholic Church, a, a part of a um, shift in the way of understanding what church is and the role of missionaries. Um, so instead of, you know, when she went, it was, a, it was a classic kind of missionary, right? Teach the people to be better Catholics. Um, over the course of her time there, because of changes in the Catholic Church, namely Vatican II, which uh, reimagined the role of, of sisters, reimagined the responsibility of lay people, reimagined um, methods of education and methods of adult faith formation, particularly. Because of all of those changes, her work as a sister really evolved uh, over her decade and a half in Nicaragua, so that in the end, she was a community organizer. Uh, she was helping to form base Christian communities, which were small groups of um, of Catholic adults who met together in each other's homes to read the Bible, to discuss it, and to crucially apply it to the real world, apply the messages in this ancient book to their to their actual lives, uh, in that case living under a, a dictatorship. And so Mora and the other sisters and, and hundreds of religious educators and um, as well as political organizers at that time were involved in this movement. I'm speaking with Eileen Markey. She's the author of A Radical Faith, The Assassination of Sister Mora. And one of the things that's very clear throughout your book is her motivation came really from a, a, a spiritual place, an open heart. Um, you know, what she wouldn't never necessarily think of herself as, as political, as, as needing to read Karl Marx or anything like that. It really did come from a spiritual place for her. Can, can you talk about her calling as, as a woman religious and her character? Yeah, one of the things that I that I learned over the years that I spent researching Mora's life, speaking to friends of hers, um, reading all of her letters, reading some retreat diaries, is just how much of her um, motivation in life was always deeply, deeply interpersonal. Um, she she wrote to the Marinol uh, religious order when she was nineteen to say she wanted to become a sister, um, 
And among those reasons, she said she wanted to do something good for God's people. Um, and she believed she had, she had a calling to do that. Um, she was attracted primarily, at least, at least at that point, to this idea of, of serving, of serving God by serving others, um, of helping people in great need. And throughout her life, the people who, who knew her at any stage always say that she had this sort of preternatural ability to connect, um, that when she spoke to you, you felt like you had her entire attention, that you were the only person in the world. Um, and that's a, an attention, especially to people who are marginalized, especially to people who, you know, interested in, in simple social situations where the person nobody was talking to in the room. Um, and then in larger, you know, geopolitical situations, people who the to the economy and the politics did not serve. But it was always this very personal heart to heart sort of motivation. Um, and I spent years as I was researching this book, pondering and trying to untangle or understand the relationship between faith and politics. And, and I think they're inextricably linked, um, that what you believe, um, is fundamentally true. What you believe are fundamental truths about the universe, about how you treat other people, obviously, uh, has to play out in, in this world. And that's polis, P-O-L-I-S, right? That's politics. That's how we decide to organize a society. Um, so Mora's great love of other people, great humility, and really deep and evolving, ever deeper commitment to serving Christ led her to serve people who were suffering. Um, and her great humility, honestly, and kind of um, deep honesty um, meant that she, she took to heart the implications of this Christianity that she believed in. She wasn't able to separate it from what she saw. Um, and so if, you know, the Sermon on the Mount and much of Jesus's teaching talks about the last shall be first um, and talks about a time when there will be no more hunger, she took that literally. And so she tried to work for a society um, physically, politically, economically, where that would be true. And at one time in the book, she you, you write about her kind of taking on the National Guard uh, and and, she, and the, the guard was surprised that this nun was, you know, in in his face. And, and so he says, uh, you know, why don't you go back to your convent? And, and she said, this is uh, my convent. Can you talk about that a little bit, um, that that sense of the, of the convent being uh, really changing for her? I feel like that scene is kind of the climax of the book, right? It, it occurs kind of uh, chronologically in the middle of the book or in the first two thirds. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but the die is cast when she speaks like that, when we realize that that's how she thinks, that that's what her notion of where, uh, the divine is, uh, and where service to the divine resides. She's saying in that scene that, that God is here in this very miserable, very neglected, uh, very exploited, um, displaced persons camp on the outskirts of Managua. So, that occurred in the mid-1970s, the scene you're talking about. She, she'd she been a vowed sister for almost 25 years by then. Um, and if she ever thought that the convent was a place behind high walls, a place where you kept silence, a place where you prayed Latin prayers, uh, a place where you separated yourself from the world, if she ever believed that, um, it, she certainly didn't by the mid-1970s. And sisters with whom she lived and worked and other sisters who had gone through the, the changes of Vatican II by that point 
said that there was this phrase, you know, almost kind of like a bumper sticker phrase that they were all sort of working around in those years. Like the world is my convent. Um, you know, it, it comes out of documents, um, again, from this, this papal conference of Vatican II that says nuns belong in the world as part of the laity, as part of the, of the regular people. Um, and she took that very much to heart. So God wasn't some locked up special thing you keep in a separate room and, and her life as a vowed religious person, a person devoted to Jesus, um, wasn't about being separated. It was about being right in the midst of where she found people suffering and particularly in their struggle for justice, for less poverty, for better access to water. You know, I want to talk a little bit with you about liberation theology and Vatican II um, and, and their relationship, kind of, in a sense, two different things. I mean, my question is that there is Vatican II on the one hand, uh, in which the world leaders gathered together and really rethought the theology of the Catholic Church, but there's also the Church's ongoing mission all along in Latin America, Nicaragua, let's say, and, and the struggle of the people there. So I wonder if that struggle itself shaped Vatican II, which one shaped which? That's a really great question. Um, so there's Vatican II. There's also for people who are kind of students of this era or of liberation theology or Latin American history. Um, there was a conference in 1968 in Medellin, Colombia, in which a bunch of bishops put forth uh, documents that would that were supposed to articulate how they would apply the um, the requirements of Vatican II to their local church. So Medellin were these very radical. Uh, Religious documents, statements of purpose, um, but calling very much for a change in the in the structure of how those societies worked. And you know, I when I began doing this research, I thought about, all right, so what did Medellin mean to Mora, and when did she read those documents, and what did she think about them? And wow, after that conference, everything changed for people. Um, but it took me a while to realize, of course, it wasn't born out of whole cloth, right? The um, those ideas came from work that people were already doing on the ground, the regular day in and day out pastoral work of, of priests and sisters and lay people in their communities. Um, I think it's fair though, to say that the changes in her life in particular were shaped by, you know, they were obedient to changes. It's funny. You were, I think we're used to in this country thinking about sisters sometimes as, um, as renegades or as um, somehow in conflict or disobedient to Rome, all the changes that, that happened in the 1960s and 70s to make the nuns we know today, they were following the rules that they were told to follow coming out from all these cardinals meeting in Rome. Um, dress like the regular people, go back to your founding documents, figure out what it is your original mission was supposed to be before it got overlaid with a lot of rules and a lot of tradition. Um, so, as the Marianal Order started to read and study these theological documents coming out of Vatican II, um, they they examined all of their work and all of their missions. And in you know, with years of conversation and hundreds of meetings and analyses, uh, decided to change the focus of their work. And Mora was part of that in in her little mission, the Marianal Sisters' work in countries all over the world. But at, in those years, Mora was in charge of, of the mission uh, in Siuna, Nicaragua, a gold mining town in Nicaragua. And so she applied those lessons. And particularly, it's these techniques, it's these education techniques, um, really modeled on Paolo Fieri, talking about how to educate, and that education is not about in, in forcing information into someone, right? But it's about 
um, an exchange uh, between teacher and student, a, a breaking down of this division between student and teacher, uh, and about unleashing the, the knowledge and the capability of the student. Um, so those are all ideas that are that are being discussed and people are writing papers about and sisters are sharing books with each other about these ideas in the mid-1960s. Um, and Samora and, and the rest of these sisters took those to heart. And so that changed what they did in their work. Um, and then those changes led to this deeper engagement with the political situation of each of their countries. And it was very empowering, this idea that uh, the Bible is for you, uh, the, the Mass is in uh, the language of the people, uh, the Eucharistic table is not something that's away, but it is the presence of, of God within the people itself. I mean, it was all very empowering to then move towards uh, liberation. I, I wonder if it's a po- how we could measure the effect of of. The work of Sister Mora, liberation theology, for example, in the freedom movement in Nicaragua. Yeah, so um, people who studied the Nicaraguan Revolution, which is a very well-studied revolution, um, the the base Christian communities, the liberation theology um, movement is very important to that revolution. I don't know if you could say it's um, just you know that it's the only thing. Uh, you couldn't say that it's the only thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I don't know if it's the most important um, factor that led to the toppling of Samosa, but it's deeply, deeply important. Um, several of the the leaders of the revolution who right after Samosa was deposed were, were uh, part of a group of nine that, that ran to the government in the first few years. Um, they were people who had been instructed by Jesuits um, in these based Christian community groups and this liberation theology study groups as teenagers and took their commitment um, a step further into a political revolution. Um, so many of the early participants in the Sandinista revolution were people who were um, inspired and activated because of their faith and because of this, these, you know, maybe 10 years of this adult faith formation that was based around this empowering idea um, that you are the church and that your analysis of these stories and your application to them to your real life um, is what's valid and is what matters. Um, in the in the first years of the Nicaraguan Revolution, the Minister of Education, the Minister of Culture, and the Foreign Minister were all Catholic priests. Um, they're they're inextricably linked, right? The the liberation movement. Uh, from the theology point of view and the political liberation movement, they fed each other in those first years especially. Well, those who assassinated her certainly saw her as a political threat. Can you give us an, an overview of the politics of this time period and this place and, and what was happening and how Mora's assassination uh, was a product of that? Mora lived in, in both countries, in Nicaragua and in El Salvador, through a time um, when there was uh, there were large and well organized social movements attempting to overthrow the government, that's that's what was going on. It was um, people who disagreed with the way their government was run, um, first through electoral methods um, and later through revolution, attempting to overthrow their government. Um, and then many people caught up in the in the um, backlash of the government repressing that movement, right? Um, 
And those movements were broad. They included people motivated solely by Christian uh, beliefs and convictions. So they also included people who were trained in Cuba and in the Soviet Union as organizers. And they included a lot of people in between. And then, as I say, especially in El Salvador, there were a lot of people who weren't particularly involved in, uh, in thinking about the way the country was run, but because they were poor and because they were beside and in the regions where there were organized groups uh, attempting to form a new government, the, these other people came in for just brutal and horrific uh, repression and death. And so Mora was, was part of a social movement. I think one of the peculiarities of how we deal with um, thinking about politics and thinking about heroes in the U.S. is that we like these individuals, but it's always a movement that changes things. It's never one great person uh, or even four great people. So, so one of the things I came to understand through doing this research is that Mora and the other sisters were, were part of a social movement um, that was trying to reform society. And because they were part of that and because the government and the military in no way wanted to reform, that's why they were killed. And that's why they were um, worth, worth killing, worth uh, the government um, seeking them out. I was in high school uh, when this was happening in Nicaragua, and I remember hearing on the media, we, we always just heard leftist guerrillas, kind of a phrase, often repeated, scary term. Uh, but Mora knew these uh, guerrillas as, as her students, her parishioners, those who, uh, those who suffered with her. Did you get a sense of how Mora, uh, Sister Mora felt about armed resistance? Yeah, I think she felt complicated about it. Mora had no great desire to see people killed, no great desire to, you know, a great desire not to see people killed or to see anyone uh, raise arms against uh, a, a fellow human. Um, but she also had seen the viciousness of the repression. So Morris came back to the U.S. in the late 1970s, and, and she gave an interview to a magazine um, in which she talks about this, this issue of people taking up arms. And she says, um, I'm not going to quote it exactly, but she says, we cannot judge um, anyone who, who makes this decision. Um, it's not theoretical if you're living through it. It's not theoretical if, if you know um, that your family members have been tortured, that people have been arrested, that if you are caught trying to work against this government, you face certain torture and, and likely death. Um, I think for us, People in the U.S., it's uh, particularly people on, on the, the left, I would think, right, uh, were really uncomfortable with, uh, with the notion of, of using violence, and rightly so. Um, but it was a different context for these people then, uh, and Mora seemed to say that. Um, one of the other things that was really interesting to uncover as I, I was doing this research is to realize how much she was influenced by the fact that her father was in the Irish Revolution yeah. in Ireland in the 1920s. And so when these young men and women started to say, you know, uh, no greater love is there than to lay down your friends, your, your life for your friends, or um, it's my responsibility to work to build the kingdom of God here on earth. Uh, I'm going to go to the guerrillas. I'm going to go to the training camp now because I think this is the next stage that we need to do. Um, when they started to say that, she recognize this decision to take your commitment um, to that to that degree of joining uh, 
a fighting force because her father had made the same choices when he was a young man. And she wrote to him many times over the years in exactly those terms. Eileen Markey has been my guest, A Radical Faith, The Assassination of Sister Mora. I really have one more question for you. I'll have many, but I'm going to have, stick it to one. Um, at the beginning, you talked about how um, her martyrdom has, has been used uh, in, in many legitimate ways. Uh, for example, how, how, to, how it is to be a good Catholic and so forth. What, what now that you've done, you spent the years researching her, writing her book, what is her legacy for you? Oh, there's, there's a lot. I, one of them might sound a little bit funny, but, um, in this age of such total distraction, um, you know, everybody with a phone in their hand and not looking at their kids, her, um, her incredible ability to pay attention to the people she was with and to be with the people she was with is something I, I draw on and I'm trying to make a, um, to think of her as a, a patron saint of paying attention, hmm. um, one of you know there there are many ways that uh, that I think her story is important and can be inspiring to people. Maybe the biggest one is just this idea that God isn't somewhere else. That God isn't something you go find inside a special building with a special language. Um, that God exists in the coming together of people uh, in the shared community of people trying to do good and trying to respect each other and the book ends on this sort of meditation about what, what Mora believed. And, you know, at heart it was this belief that nobody was discardable, that nobody should be written off. Um, and so in her life, because of the work she did, that meant slum dwellers who'd been displaced from the countryside because they couldn't, they didn't have land tenure. Right. Or it meant people uh, marked for death in El Salvador because they were associated uh, with the resistance to that government. Um, but at other points in her life, it meant the person who was sitting alone in the cafeteria. And um, I think that's that's one of the lessons I'm trying to draw from her is is just the, the deep radicalism of this faith in the idea that everyone matters and that God is here with us and made more real with us together. A very important book, A Radical Faith, The Assassination of Sister Mora. I highly recommend it. My guest has been Eileen Markey. Uh, Eileen, thank you uh, so much for, for all the work that you've put into uh, telling her story and for being with me today. Thank you so much. Lovely to be with you. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit. For more information about the show and for links to podcasts, go to ProgressiveSpirit.net. For the Pacifica Radio Network and for the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, I'm John Shack. Be well.